0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash BestOfLeft or visit the contribute tab at BestOfLeft.com. Now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn all about Brexit and related matters. And, you know, this show is usually only about an hour long, and I wondered how in the world was I going to ever be able to fit in all of the incredibly complicated history of not just the past few years of Brexit, the conservative arguments in favor of taking back control of their borders, the progressive arguments for reforming the EU from within, the the far-left arguments for leaving the EU due to its entrenched neoliberal structures, uh, but also the context of Britain's relationship with Ireland over the past 20 to 300 years, the history of the troubles and, and worries over border controls that have thrown major wrenches into this whole process, and to do all of those topics justice. So then I thought, nah, you know, an extra 20 minutes or so ought to do it. Uh, so enjoy this special, extended, totally exhaustive, and complete edition of the show that includes everything there is to possibly know about Brexit. With clips today from Now This News, Chapo Trap House, Democracy Now, Ideas from the CBC, The Inquiry, Analysis, This is Hell, The Weekly Economics Podcast, Jonathan Pie and Why Is This Happening?
1: Brexit Day isn't happening. At least not the way it was originally scheduled to. March 29th, 2019 was the original deadline for the day that Britain was actually supposed to exit the European Union. But the UK Parliament has failed, time and again, to make a deal regarding the terms of the exit that people can agree on. And so March 29th is passing, just another day, and Britain remains in the EU. Right-wing anti-immigration hardliners were ready to celebrate, with people like former UKIP leader Nigel Farage calling it Britain's Independence Day. They were planning to bring in Brexit supporters by bus to Brussels, Belgium, the de facto capital of the European Union, and pop champagne while they watched the European Parliament lower the UK flag for the last time. And they were reportedly going to try to make the EU cover their travel expenses, too. The fact is, the British people and its lawmakers remain deeply divided over whether they should stay or go, and over how they should manage the process of leaving. Two years ago, on March 29, 2017, the U.K. invoked Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union, the formal declaration needed to indicate they were going to break up with the EU. It's never been done before by any other EU member. And once you invoke it, you have two years to negotiate the terms of your exit. Now those negotiations have been so messy that after a solid two years, no one has been able to agree upon anything. Immigration policy, safety regulations, energy access, labor laws, all of these issues are on the table because for the past 46 years, they've all been shaped by Britain's membership with the EU. It was back in June 2016 that 51.9% of the United Kingdom voted to leave the EU. It was a divisive and fraught election which resulted in that very close vote. And people have questioned the legitimacy of that referendum because of heavily misleading claims from the Vote Leave campaign and even allegations of Russian interference on social media. Sound familiar? The Remain campaign, for its part, was also accused of scaremongering, with dire predictions of financial crisis that have yet to come to pass. One of the biggest whoppers that was told, Vote Leave argued that exiting the EU would mean millions of pounds flowing back to the country's beloved NHS. They even put it on the side of a bus and had their leaders photographed with it. And a poll showed that nearly half of the British public believed them. But the day after the Brexit vote, Nigel Farage, who was part of the separate Leave EU campaign, said it was a mistake. The Vote Leave campaign was also found to have broken campaign finance law, according to the UK election watchdog, and they were fined £80,000 for it. Though it was Prime Minister David Cameron's idea to have the referendum in the first place, he supported the Remain in the EU campaign. The day after, when the results came in, he announced his resignation. And it's been a roller coaster ever since. I'm going to try to recap the major points for you. Theresa May became prime minister and started appointing people to help lead an orderly Brexit. Though people were already starting to challenge the results of the referendum by then, she was very firm that Brexit means Brexit. Meetings started, Article 50 was invoked, and in June 2017, the UK held a general election, showing cracks in the public's confidence in May. She had to join forces with another political party in order to keep a slim majority in parliament. The UK then continued negotiations with the EU, but they stumbled into a number of obstacles. They can't agree on trade. They can't agree on what to do about the Irish border because Northern Ireland is part of the UK and the Republic of Ireland is part of the EU. But they all have existing trade customs and resource arrangements already. The old hard border between the two countries was a symbol of conflict, and putting one up again could damage peace in the region. At this point. Lawmakers, the British public, and the rest of the world are beginning to understand how complicated this process is. As a reminder, it's never been done before, so there's no blueprint to follow. By 2018, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn started talking about his vision for a post-Brexit new customs union with the EU, which Leave supporters see as a total betrayal. But the public confidence is shaken in the process, and Parliament is splintering into different factions. By the fall of 2018, no major agreements have been reached and 700,000 people march in London to call for a new referendum. They want to do it over. Shortly after that, EU leaders actually came to an agreement on a Brexit deal with May. It felt like a breakthrough, except that the deal is pretty unpopular back home. Members of her own party are unhappy because they think it leaves too much power with the EU. Members of the opposition think the plan isn't doing enough to protect the economy in the UK. But May still tries to get it passed because there is no other plan. Parliament soundly rejects it. They also rejected eight other options put forward as alternative plans. And that's basically where we are now. No deal, no exit, and an uncertain path forward. Oh, and one million people marched in London to again call for a new referendum. That's according to organizers, while over five million people have signed a petition calling for the same thing. Brexit was supposed to allow Britain to take back control over its economic destiny and to allow it to chart its course in a post-imperial world. But we've seen it take down two prime ministers instead. As a result of all of the complications in the process, the country's future is now more unclear than it has been since the end of the Second World War.
2: Just starting from the beginning, because this is an American audience largely. What is the European Union and who runs it?
3: The European Union has been in existence for, you know, well over fifty years now, so sixty years now. So it's uh, it's something that has changed over the course of time. Uh, it began as basically a trade and uh, industry support framework, and then gradually he has begun to look like a transnational organization that has the attributes of a state. So it has changed a lot in the course of its uh, history. I would say that right now, it's a neoliberal citadel. It is a vast array of institutions that protect the interests of big business and big banks. It is thoroughly undemocratic and anti-democratic, and it is run by a cabal of unelected people or people elected in their own countries, very powerful people who make huge decisions, decisions of profound importance behind the backs of uh, workers, the poor, uh, the broad layers of um, the population in Europe, uh, who know that something is not right and oppose it, basically.
2: Right. Um, so how did it come to be? Like, who are the architects of the EU? I, I know it's very old.
3: Sure. Um, The EU was set up in the late 50s, the time of the Cold War. The United States was behind it. They understood it as a bulwark against the um, Soviet Union. Um, And it was basically French capitalists, German capitalists, uh, allying themselves to, to, to each other to protect the coal industry and to protect agriculture, coal and steel industry to protect agriculture. That's how it began. In those days, these were the days of the long post-war boom, the the days of Keynesianism. The European Union was understood as an interstate alliance uh, that could intervene in markets, that could um, affect the economy in important ways, that it we could have a social democratic dimension, like the the world was social democratic. Then, even in the United States, you had you had, you had mechanisms of intervention and of controlling markets. Uh, but since the nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties, late nineteen eighties, uh, all that has died, basically finished. And this is now a thoroughly neoliberal outfit. Since the Maastricht Treaty in nineteen ninety two, it's a thoroughly um, Uh, Neoliberal uh, outfit The European Union Which basically um, protects free markets Promotes free markets And protects uh, 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 big business uh, And big banks within it Decisions are made uh, by uh, the uh, European Council Uh, The European Parliament is not a real parliament The European Central Bank uh, Is an enormously powerful institution And the European Commission uh, Is a set of bureaucrats and administrators who again are not democratically accountable to anyone um, it's a bizarre outfit it's, it's a, the most it's the strangest collection of institutions that has a huge democratic deficit right uh, at its core uh, at, at, at the present moment
2: right so it's developed and changed over time through um, sort of expansion and growth um, you know how is it Grown and what is what is this Europeanism, this economic project of Europeanism, as it means now in our in our present moment?
3: Yes, yes, that's a very good question, and that's exactly what we've got to explain. As far as the left is concerned, you see, in the 1980s, the decade in which neoliberalism emerged, things began to change politically and socially across the world, of course, and they ha- they changed in Europe. That's when the big change occurred in 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 Europe in the European mm-hmm. Union, and then. Uh, it, took, uh, it took official form in the, in, the, in the Treaty of Maastricht in 1992. Uh, what happened in the 1980s is that, uh, it, basically two things. The workers' movement was defeated in key, key parts of the continent, uh, and organized labor became less and less confident in itself and capable of taking on uh, capital, that's the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened in the 1980s was, of course, late 1980s was, of course, the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. The collapse of the Eastern Bloc removed, um, removed any notion that uh, there was an alternative way of doing things. I've never supported what was there. I should make that clear. But nonetheless, a lot of people thought that this was another way of doing things and, 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 and the left uh, could learn something from it. So the combination of worker weakness... And the collapse of the Eastern Bloc delivered a huge blow to the European left. The European left lost confidence in itself. It stopped believing uh, they could change the world, that it could tackle capitalism, they could make things work in a different way. In that context, Europe, an imaginary Europe, and the European Union started to look like the promised land. That was the alternative, you see, for a lot of people. If you can't change the world where you are, If you can't take capital on where you are, if you can't, if you can't make things better, shift the balance of ever workers and the poor where you are and begin to put in place uh, mechanisms of solidarity that are based on working people uh, and so on across Europe, then maybe the European Union is your answer. Maybe that's where you will find uh, paradise. And a lot of the left in, in Europe. Um, has come to believe in it um, the European Union has emerged for much of the left in Europe as the promised land it's an incredible, incredible uh, development and an incredible historical farrago because of course traditionally the European left was very critical of the European Union very critical for, 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 for the right reasons um, but its historical defeat of the left has seen it um, transform the European Union in its own head into a uh, into, into a very nice project, a very good project, a left-wing project. It's, 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 it, I mean, it's unconscionable, but that's what's happened in Europe.
2: Right, despite the fact that it's completely anti-democratic and outside any kind of democratic control within if, the nation state.
3: If anyone sees, goes near the beast and sees how it works, um, there can be no doubt as to what it is. Brussels is uh, is one of the, uh, the largest... Um, centers in the world for for business lobbying. After Washington, it's number two. Um, uh, the, and that's not accidental, right? Because big business knows <laughs> which way is bread is is buttered. The operations of the mechanisms in Brussels and so on, the administration and the various bureaucratic mechanisms in Brussels are completely Opaque and undemocratic and anti-democratic. If you go anywhere near it, you know that this is not a left-wing project, project, and it can never become a left-wing project. Only if you're far away from it, you imagine it to be something that it never is, it never was, and never can be. Uh, that's how it works, basically.
4: Grace Blakely is the economics commentator at The New Statesman. Her recent column is headlined... The European project has far bigger problems than Brexit. And she writes, quote, for every step forward European leaders have taken since the financial crisis, they've taken two steps back. While many worry about China showing global growth and a no-deal Brexit, the truly existential questions the EU faces are internal and they're all about power. Who will pick up the tab for economic stimulus, financial stability and industrial strategy? Northern European states, big business or Southern Europe Impoverished citizens? Who makes policy? Unelected bureaucrats, the European Parliament or member states? And who will determine the future of the bloc should the U.K. leave, Germany, France or Brussels? Can you comment on her comments?
5: I think that um, it is important to remember that uh, there is a European Parliament and there are elected MEPs, members of the European Parliament. So, I think it's quite possible to overstate the extent uh, to which there is no contribution uh, to decisions made by the EU. And what we know is that the EU's uh, Worse policies, its more neoliberal uh, policies have in fact been contributed to by Britain. Um, It seems clear that the EU is a neoliberal, uh, it is a capitalist institution, it comes with many of the problems of contemporary capitalism uh, and its institutions. But the question on the table, I think, is what are the options? Um, If you want to leave the EU, which is the sort of left, so-called lexit or left uh, uh, Brexit position, then one would do so for something that is not neoliberal and that is not capitalist and that does allow for greater democratic uh, uh, say. But the options that Brexit has put forward are, I'm afraid, not that. Um, it is a question, I think, of staying within the EU and actually being able to reform it from within, or uh returning to britain where brexit is an extremely ideologically driven deeply neoliberal in in some ways um a free market uh disaster capitalist project so it seems to me that there are many problems with the eu and nobody who's progressive can deny that there are problems with the eu but the question is what is the alternative and if you leave uh the eu you're not actually doing that for greater democracy uh, or for greater social justice, you're actually capitulating to if what is—what uh, I would definitely describe as a far-right project, both
4: economically and socially. Are you calling for a second referendum?
5: Um, let me phrase this carefully. I think that any deal that Parliament comes up with today, whether— Uh, that is uh, a soft Brexit, whether that is no Brexit, whether that is a hard Brexit or whether in fact it is no deal, I think that the decision should be returned to the British people. And I say this for two reasons. I think that any deal uh, that substantially changes Britain's relationship with the EU should in an exercise of democratic rights, be returned to the people uh, for a vote. I also say it because I think there are very serious questions about the Leave campaign's role in the first referendum, and there are questions about the extent of disinformation and extent of electoral uh, uh, problems, uh, uh, you know, uh, to put it, very mildly were electoral, uh, breaking of electoral regulations by the Leave campaign uh, in the lead up to the 2016 referendum. So, it seems to me uh, quite important to take these essentially life-altering decisions back to the British people.
4: There were hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million people, on Saturday in London pushing for a second referendum, who went out into the uh, streets, um, one of the largest mass demonstrations ever held there. Um, what exactly now um, would it mean uh, if there was a second referendum? How would it go forward um, there are obviously question marks about that, and it isn't uh,
5: very clear exactly what the questions would be and whether the questions would be simply asking uh, for an opinion on any deal that was uh, proposed, or whether it would also include uh, the position of remaining, of continuing uh, in the European Union by uh, revoking Article 50. Um, it seems to me that any referendum now should lay out uh, a range of options, Uh Voting on a deal uh, and also uh, giving people the option of remaining in the European Union. Six million people have signed a record-breaking petition asking for Article 50 to be revoked. Now, obviously, that can't be done on the basis of a petition, but it suggests that there is a strong enough feeling in this country that the decision of 2016 needs to be rethought in the light of new information and in the light of what is essentially a failed negotiation process by Theresa May's government. So, given that there is a uh, move to towards uh, changing uh, the, the referendum outcome of last time, I think it, it, it is something that must be put back to the
4: people. Finally, what do you think the media should be asking right now?
5: I think that the media needs to uh, ask two things. Um, I think it needs to ask tougher questions about how the referendum of 2016 was conducted. It needs uh, to—you know, really, it should have by now asked more uh, probing questions about the kinds of misinformation that was circulating uh, by the Leave campaign in the lead-up to that uh, referendum. It should also be asking questions—and I'm very surprised that this is not being done— uh, we know that the Electoral Commission has fined uh, the Leave campaign for violations of electoral law, and the Leave campaign has essentially accepted uh, that fine and is going to pay it. Now, this is quite serious. We now have uh, Electoral Commission's judgment that there were electoral uh, process violations by the Leave campaign. We also know that some of the key funders uh, of the Leave campaign are under investigation by the police and by the National Crime Agency. So again, as in the U.S. situation, there are questions about where the money came from, uh, who used the money, whether there has been uh, interference from outside, um, and what kinds of and, and crim- potential criminal violations. And it seems to me that uh, the media really ought to be pursuing these questions with much greater vigour than they have been so far.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair—outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed Color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Best of the Left listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed, R-E-E-D, and use the promo code Laughed.
6: A
7: recent book says it all, Paul. The Bad Boys of Brexit, Tales of Mischief, Mayhem, and Guerrilla Warfare in the EU referendum campaign.
8: Everyone knows who won. But not everyone knows how.
9: We are about to ask the biggest question in a generation. In out, and we need a leader.
7: So, what we're listening to, Paul, is a clip from the movie Brexit: The Uncivil War, featuring Benedict Cumberbatch, who says to us, "Everybody knows who won, but not everyone knows how." And just
10: uh, the tone of the voice there—it sounds like a conspiracy to me. Yeah. And uh, yeah. how how did the Leaf side then claim to win?
7: Yeah, well, I'm sure some listeners, they've heard pockets of information about how this all came about, you know, through social media campaigns, micro-targeting possible voters, potential fraud in terms of referendum funding, investigations are ongoing. But what is clear is the man behind Leave Europe, I don't think a lot of people know about him is a man named Dominic Cummings. Cummings was once called a political psychopath by David Cameron. He's also been called a monomaniacal egotist with a wrecking ball, not to put too fine a point on it. Cummings decided, hmm, what are people scared of the most? Losing their health care? What else? Immigration? Robert Winder calls Cummings' plan a heist, selling tribal fear over human reasoning. And it worked.
8: The film starring Benedict Cumberbatch was very surprising in a way because it showed that the campaign wasn't really on the level of ideas. It was actually just an extremely clever, skillful heist. And a small group of very purposeful and talented people got together and wondered how best they could win this referendum. And they just fastened on a few very obvious things. One, you know, not even true, really. They'd made a bus saying, we give the EU 350 billion pounds a week that could go to the NHS. And they did that the National Health Service to help hospitals. And most people, if you said, you've here's 350 million quid, would you rather give it to Europe, this imaginary thing, or have it for your hospital? Everyone would say, have it for your hospital. Of course, it was a complete representation of the way all of that works. And it wasn't even a true number. Um, but that got hidden. And in fact, it was devised on the level of public relations, really, as a strategy to make people choose between the NHS and the EU, you know. So it was a ruse. By the same token, it was frequently put about that um, Turkey was about to join the EU and therefore 80 million people would soon be marching through your village. And that got people very riled because that wasn't true either. And yet it spoke to that fear. And definitely in this film... They showed the Leave campaign actually deciding as a matter of policy, sending out their campaigners and said, only say two things. NHS, Turkey, £350 million, Turkey. Repeat that, repeat that, repeat that. And it worked.
7: Well, as you know, the title of this program is called Manufacturing Discontent. I mean, it would seem it's certainly applicable here.
8: A certain amount of manufacturing. I think the other thing that came out in the film was that they – targeted and located and then poked with a stick a group of voters who didn't normally vote perhaps had never voted before but had been itching for a chance to kind of give someone a bloody nose for the fact that life wasn't great and um, it was an extremely skillful operation in fact it was a great advertisement for sort of british pr if not for british
10: politics (laughs) <laughs> and so much for people power.
7: I know. It definitely invites cynicism.
10: So they must have had a, a main slogan, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, politics, public relations, propaganda, it, it, it usually has something in it that that has a ring. Yeah. They?
7: Their main slogan, Paul, was take back control. And it seems to mean something, and it makes everyone feel better, right? It's amorphous, and it seems to imply you can be the master of your own house, of your destiny. And Robert Winter thinks... There's actually even more to it than that.
8: It's also code for can we please have fewer foreigners here. And there is no doubt that under the free movement legislation of the European Union, um, that was taken advantage of by uh, hundreds of thousands of people from Eastern Europe. And Britain is full, you know, the National Health Service, the cafes, the restaurants, the hotel, the construction sites. But everywhere in the world is like this to a certain extent, but full of foreign workers and um it was a backlash against that. I think take back control was slightly code for build that wall. For example, there was a very prominent poster which showed refugees trickling up through Macedonia. I think it was escaping the wars and famines in the Middle East and North Africa and that ed- exodus across the Mediterranean. And there were huge posters appeared with them saying take back control. This was nothing to do with the EU. Uh, this was a challenge that the EU collectively was facing what to do about this e- growing queue of people who wanted to come as refugees. Uh, So it was a refugee crisis, it was a humanitarian crisis and to put it up as a poster of somehow what continued membership of the EU would represent was extremely dishonest, but very effective.
5: Ireland, North and South.
11: The only way you know you're crossing the border is that the signs on the road change from miles per hour, which is in Northern Ireland, and then they become kilometres per hour when you enter into the Republic of Ireland.
12: John Campbell is the BBC's business and economics editor for Northern Ireland.
11: Some of my colleagues here in, in BBC Northern Ireland live in the Republic of Ireland. They work in Northern Ireland, so it's a regular commute for people.
12: The border was drawn when Ireland was partitioned in the 1920s what's now called Northern Ireland, with a majority Protestant population, remained part of the United Kingdom, and the rest of the country, where Catholics are in the majority, broke away to form what's now the Republic of Ireland. Partition followed years of violence, which left a bitter legacy. And
11: that border has been a source of tension, of violence, for many, many
12: years. It was worst during the Troubles, the conflict in Northern Ireland, which began in the late 1960s and claimed more than 3,500 lives. And when the troubles ended with what was known as the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, the border duly receded as an issue. But Brexit has now brought it right back into the centre of Irish politics. Can you describe what it's like? Because in a way it's a false border, isn't it? As you say, it divided an island that had been united, so it runs through communities and so forth.
11: Yeah, so if you think of many... European borders, they are very clearly marked by geography. So the Rhine is the border between France and Germany, if you like. The Irish border is nothing like that. It's this meandering 300-mile line with about two or 300 crossing points. If you're on the little back roads, you can be winding in and out of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland without even knowing it.
12: Because both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland have been members of the European Union, that hasn't mattered. The EU's customs union means there are no tariffs to collect on goods crossing the border and its single market guarantees the free movement of goods, capital, services and people.
11: So no customs checks, no regulatory checks, no checks on people.
12: But in January 2017, Theresa May made that big speech on her Brexit plans at Lancaster House and they included pulling the United Kingdom out of both the single market and the customs union. That rang alarm bells in Dublin, the capital of the Irish Republic.
11: Diplomats, civil servants, politicians immediately saw danger lurking there. There was no real engagement with what that would mean for Northern Ireland. There was generally just a sense, particularly from Brexit campaigners, it'll be fine, there's nothing much to worry about.
12: But there was, in fact, lots to worry about. If, after Brexit, there were different tariff and regulatory regimes on the two sides of the border, surely there'd need to be checks there. And all that blood-soaked history means...
11: The fear in in Ireland is that you could end up remilitarising the border almost by mistake. Because if you had a situation where there had to be some form of customs check, say, on food or animals crossing that border, you'd need to have a facility in which to do that. Then you think, well, do we need to protect this facility? And then suddenly... You have all these new structures on the border. It will raise tension in the area and for some people those structures will become a target.
12: British negotiators argued that the issue would simply fade away once the United Kingdom's long-term relationship with the EU had been settled. You have such a, a deep and comprehensive
11: trade deal between the UK and the EU there would never be any need for checks on goods moving across that border.
12: They also claim that even if things got complicated, sophisticated technology could be used to police goods crossing the border without the need for new buildings or infrastructure.
11: And that option is particularly preferred by Brexit supporters.
12: But the Europeans have dismissed that as magical thinking.
11: Yes, time and again. The Irish government and the EU have said that particularly the technology one is not
12: going to fly. Some Brexit supporters in London believe the Irish border issue is a sideshow but for the government in Dublin, it's the priority.
11: There's been, I think, a very interesting process happening throughout Brexit, which is parts of the British establishment having to come to terms with the fact of Irish independence nearly 100 years on, that Ireland is an independent state with its own aspirations and its own interests. It's backed up in that through its membership of the EU and it won't just fall in line behind what its big neighbour in the United Kingdom wants. And it has been fascinating to watch.
12: To get round the border problem, Mrs May and the European Union have had to agree on what's known as the backstop, an arrangement that would come into play if all else failed. Britain as a whole would remain inside the customs union and Northern Ireland would remain aligned to some of the single market rules. This backstop is a cornerstone of the deal now on the table between London and Brussels. And it's also the main reason this deal provokes such
10: hostility.
8: Marianne
12: Elliott is the author of When God Took Sides, Religion and Identity in Ireland.
13: It really takes centuries for memories and identity to be established and identities are not always very positive so those very simplified identities that were initially based on really sectarian religious identities then do produce the Troubles in Northern Ireland. In 1969 all sides behaved the way the stereotypes said they would behave.
12: Both Marianne Elliott and Paul Bew lived through the Troubles. Born to a Catholic mother originally from County Cork, he later worked closely with the senior Ulster Unionist Lord Trimble in the run-up to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Paul Bew was ennobled as Lord Bew as a result of his efforts to secure the Good Friday, or as it's sometimes called Belfast, Agreement. The Agreement has kept an occasionally rocky peace ever since, and because Republican terrorism had spread across the Irish Sea, it was, like Catholic emancipation, a settlement that influenced the whole of the United Kingdom.
14: The great British political experiment of the 20th century is the Belfast Agreement. Fintan O'Toole. The Belfast Agreement is a revolution in British political thinking which is tried out in Ireland, where Irish conditions, again, kind of force you to think about what is allegiance? What do you belong to? What's identity? Can you have multiple identities? When the Belfast Agreement says and it's partly a british creation and it says look everybody in northern ireland can be irish or british or both as they may so choose it's making a really radical experimental statement about sovereignty about identity about belonging and i think the problem is that people in ireland sort of took that on board it's part of the way mainstream irish thinking has gone that your identity is multiple that it's contingent that you can't just you know in the 21st century have one sense of belonging and I think the tragic thing that came out of the British habit of sort of thinking about Ireland as over there is that the really exciting, experimental, innovative sides of the Belfast Agreement have never really been allowed to seep into British thinking about identity.
12: Brexit has, at least in the view of many on the island of Ireland, called the future of the Belfast Agreement into question. The Irish dimension to Brexit certainly wasn't at the centre of the British debate, during the referendum campaign. But after Theresa May put down her red lines in the Lancaster House speech, which laid out her Brexit aspirations, Dublin forced the border issue to the centre of the negotiating agenda. And because the European Union prides itself on the principle that it protects the rights of its smaller members, the Irish case for a backstop to keep the border open has been sympathetically received. Roy Foster.
10: I think one thing that people in this country fail to recognize when they talk about sovereignty is that for Irish people membership of the EU was an immense enabler of Ireland's sense of sovereignty partly because of its long history of domination by Britain, partly because it is a historically Catholic country and has been, rather like Scotland, much more um, comparable to events in Europe than events in Britain. John Stuart Mill said that Ireland was in the mainstream of European history and Britain occupied an eccentric tributary. I think England would have been a better thing to say than Britain, but I think it's rather true for some countries, and Ireland is notably one of them, joining the EU has been, if you like, a strengthener of a sense of independence and of sovereignty and of power and of enablement, whereas the Opponents of the EU and Britain see it, of course, as meaning the reverse of all these things.
12: And is the logic of that that there's much more in the argument about the backstop than is at first apparent, that all those deeper sentiments are at play there too? I think that's true, yes.
15: The English never remember and the Irish never forget. Declan kybird quotes
12: an oft-repeated sore.
15: Many people who voted at the time of the Brexit referendum were not thinking of Ireland and did not realise the trouble it might cause. I worry about, obviously, the border coming back in a hard and unpleasant way. But actually, even more I would worry about the idea of civil rights of citizens within Northern Ireland, which were guaranteed under the Belfast Agreement by, among others, the European Union, And I would be worried that you could have a playback element to a darker time when the nationalists and Catholics in Northern Ireland felt dispossessed of certain civil rights or felt like second-class citizens, and might indeed end up seeing equations between themselves and the Windrush generation in the UK now.
12: Over the coming days, and perhaps weeks, We're likely to hear the Irish border debated in terms that make even the minutiae of Catholic emancipation nearly two centuries ago look appealingly straightforward. We'll hear about backstops and digital solutions, trusted trader schemes, parliamentary amendments and compromises in various flavours. Behind all of them lie the big facts of the so often dark history we've explored in this programme. Marianne Elliott.
13: The thing about the Good Friday Agreement and it's very important to stress this, is that it essentially took the border away as an issue and it made the nationalist population less vocal about wanting to reunify Ireland. All right, there was a little bit of a fudge going on there. They were believing really what they wanted to believe because the Good Friday Agreement... Stopped the violence, but it also brought in very, very good relations between Dublin and London. So for nearly 20 years, it held back a lot of the aggression that would come to the polarized politics of, you know, wanting reunification of Ireland or wanting to stay with the Union. And Brexit coming into this, it's thrown that into the wind.
12: So conversation about backstops and technical solutions and malt house compromises, all of that stuff is actually it's not irrelevant, but it doesn't really do justice do, do you know what? to the problem.
13: Do you know what? If checkpoints, physical checkpoints go up again on the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, they're going to be attacked by the dissident Republicans. And there's a very good chance that we will roll into troubles again.
0: If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
16: Was uh, you go back to the 1980s and see kind of the very beginning kernels of the rise of maybe the far right, but also the idea of Brexit in Thatcherism. Was Brexit inevitable with Thatcherism?
17: No, I don't think so. I mean, let's be clear, Thatcher was pro-European. She was in favor of, uh, she was one of the major uh, forces behind the Single European Act uh, passed in 1986, which established the basis for what became the European Union. Um, She was in favor of uh, free movement at that time. She was in favor of um, shared political uh, and market structures. What she did later was she turned against um, aspects of the European project because she was opposed um, to uh, some fairly mild uh, sort of human rights, uh, labour law, and environmental regulations that were brought in on the era of Jacques Delors, uh, the, being the commissioner, the European commissioner, um, and so there emerged a pretty uh, nationalistic uh, turn uh, in British Thatcherism. I mean, it's always been nationalistic in, in certain ways, but it became very pronounced. Um, so the Sun newspaper, which was the most popular newspaper in the country, this was a time when newspapers were still read. Um, it was the most popular newspaper in the country, and it um, was the official uh, tabloid organ of Thatcherism. And it started to run Uh, front pages, uh, demonizing European politicians, you know, uh, headlines like Up Yours Delores and so on. Um, And this was, uh, you know, the the beginning of some of this, but by no means was any of this inevitable. I mean, really, if you want to understand how it came about um, and the point at which it probably did become inevitable, which, by the way, even in the months leading up to the actual uh, referendum outcome, it wasn't clear that, you know, people would vote leave um, because, you know, it was only in the final few weeks that a sufficient number of Southern middle-class Tory voting uh, individuals um, who had previously gone along with uh, David Cameron and his Remain position shifted to the other side. And I think they shifted probably over the issue of immigration um, but if you want to understand how that situation came about, how we even uh, got to the point of having a referendum, you have to look at Britain between 2010 and 2015. Britain between 2010 and 2015 is a country that has just undergone undergone the worst crisis of capitalism since the 1930s. The left has been unable to do anything about it. The left has been nowhere. Instead, the major initiative has been uh, held by the political centre Um, who are implementing harsh neoliberal austerity. Um, In that period, there is um, a a series of movements. There's an anti-austerity movement. It goes nowhere. There are trade trade union strikes against austerity. They go nowhere. There's a student movement. It dissipates within a couple of months. There are riots which basically are used as the basis for, um, you know, Uh, a a serious social crackdown. Judiciary um, were let off the hook uh, in order to go after rioters. Um, And after that point, almost every single major shock in British politics, from uh, revelations of child grooming rings in the north of England, which were attributed to Pakistani men, Uh, It was a lot more complicated than that, as you can imagine, but of course it was heavily racialized in its media representation, to panics about um, halal food being fed to non-Muslim Britons in, for example, Pizza Hut, to panics about Romanian and Bulgarian migrants coming to the United Kingdom in large numbers as um, they were uh, admitted to the European Union, all the rest of it. Almost every single panic was an issue over um, uh, race, over nation, um, and it was something that drove the political consensus further to the right. Um, So that even as the government was a sort of -of middle-of-the-road conservative liberal coalition implementing austerity, but by and large not pushing things to the right, even, for example, passing uh, laws permitting gay marriage um, and, and some fairly mild laws uh, entrenching civil liberties, um, the feelings on the ground were being pushed to the right. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of uh, what I would describe as sort of uh, jitteriness, anxieties, a sense of uh, things in decline, a sense of people losing something, And nothing's really fair. You know, the austerity agenda isn't working out in such a way as to protect the poor and the most vulnerable. It's protecting the rich. It's protecting bankers. And so there's a sort of circulating sense of anger, injustice, anxiety, fear. And the right are the ones who are articulating that and are gaining the most momentum and are gaining attention in the national press. And that's crucial, of course. Because, of course, as I mentioned, the national press has been talking about white working class grievance for uh, well over a decade by that point. And suddenly UKIP uh, are describing themselves as the voice of the white working class. And the media, you know, gives them blanket coverage. So they are able to uh, exploit that situation. And as a result of that, they become the most dynamic political party in the United Kingdom. They're not the biggest, but they are the ones setting the agenda. So it's a party of middle-class protest, almost no support from any of the big class battalions like the George Union movement or the uh, Confederation of British Industry or any of that. It's a very small party of middle-class protest, but because of a crisis of representation, a crisis of British politics, and all these affects of fear, anxiety, and resentment burning in the British psyche, they are able to articulate that and drive the political agenda. And they focus the political agenda on the issue of Europe, an issue which, until that point, had been a concern to about, I don't know, two or three percent of the electorate. Suddenly it becomes the biggest issue. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how we ended up there. Some of this comes out of the affect driving Thatcherism, but it's actually uh, it's it's a much more recent phenomenon.
16: I have just got more questions for you. You write that uh, like discounting evidence of a working class Tory revival, quote, it would also be complacent to overlook the disorienting effect the vote has had on Labour. It's a successful vote in 2017, despite its electoral revival. Why did Labour doing well in the vote? Disorient labour. What does it say to you? What does it reveal to us about labour when they respond to, clo- uh, you know, doing their best in the uh, vote in decades with being disoriented?
17: Oh no, no, no. I sorry. I should uh, clarify what I'm talking about. There, the vote that I'm referring to is actually the Brexit vote in 2016. Oh, okay. Um. That, so I mean, and the reason why it disoriented them was because, of course. Prior to the referendum, there was a very clear position for Labour to take. Um, Corbyn would have been a traditional anti European Benite politician, you know, sort of traditional uh, British socialist, but uh, he had no way of uh, leading a left wing Brexit campaign in 2016. That just wasn't going to happen. Uh, the, the, the Labour Party was not going to have it, the trade union movement wouldn't have had it. So overwhelmingly, um, the position on the left was we've got to remain in the European Union. But Corbyn quite rightly said, in my opinion, you know, if we're going to remain, we have to reform the European Union. It's too undemocratic. It's too neoliberal. uh, We need to change its rules so that we can, um, you know, have a government that is able to use uh, industrial policy, um, that is able to use certain non-competitive measures and so on and so on. So uh, they they had an obvious position, remain and reform. After the referendum, uh, the only realistic position you can have, I think, is to say, well, we lost that vote. We have to accept it and we have to move on. What we can do is try to limit the damage. I mean, in my opinion, um, there is absolutely of uh what you might describe as a hard lexit you know the lexit being the acronym for a left wing exit in the european union there's there's absolutely no political basis for that there's uh, not the social forces capable of carrying it through, and of course there's no convincing program for it, so it's just damage limitation we're talking about um reducing the economic impact of brexit um and humanising its effects, however there is a section of the Labour Party, a minority it has to be said, uh, who are actively organising in favour of rerunning the referendum uh, with the hope of getting a different result this time. Um, and by and large, there is a sort of a feeling among the rank and file, which is not a particularly um, developed feeling. Um, it's not grounded in any profound commitment to European institutions, but there's a general feeling that, yeah, probably we should remain within the European Union. And it's just based on hatred of the right, it's based on hatred of racism, it's based on being pro-migrant, not wanting to be swept up into anti-immigrant racism and so on. And to that extent, quite creditable. But unfortunately, I think they can't go anywhere with it. So, Labour since uh, 2016 and the Brexit vote uh, has not felt able to defend the institution of free movement within the European Union. It's uh, been a bit more defensive about migration, even though Jeremy Corbyn himself has excellent uh, credentials when it comes to anti-racism and support for migrants and refugees. This is a man, let's remember, who when he won the leadership of the Labour Party, the first thing he did was he went down to a pro-refugee demonstration in central London almost to celebrate by joining in uh, this protest. Um, That's the kind of politician he is. But he is the leader of a party whose members of parliament um, are traditionally, you know, not particularly pro-migrant, and they would rather uh, swing to the right on migration than risk taking uh, what they fear might be uh, an unpopular position at the moment. So, you know, there, Labour is torn between this rank-and-file kind of Remainerism, um, if you like, this uh, uh, sort of nebulous uh, feeling in favour of staying within the European Union, and a sort of uh, more cautious, sort of nationalist-leaning kind of feeling among Labour MPs, quite a lot of Labour MPs, um, and some, not all, but some, of the shadow cabinet, some of the people who are most closely aligned with Jeremy Corbyn, um, also in favor of some kind of what you might describe as left nationalism. And that has an unfortunately uh, long history on the British left, um, and a, a quite a strange one, in my opinion. But um, so that's one of the reasons why it's been disorienting, because as long as they're talking about things like um, nationalizing utilities, uh, redistributing wealth, opposing wars, you know, all of this sort of stuff. There's a clear um, radical agenda that Labour can pursue and uh, they can have some sort of initiative. Um, When it comes to Brexit, there's, there's no, how to put this, there's no radical position on Europe available. I mean, there just isn't. Not in terms of anything you can practically do. The radical position presumably would be to challenge the European Union on a left-wing basis, but that's just not viable at this point. So all positions that Labour can take at this point are about damage limitation and defensiveness, um, about trying to avoid the Conservatives, for example, using the opportunity of leaving the European Union to shred even those minimal protections of workers' rights and standards um, or environmental protections, or uh, consumer protections and so on, um, labour has to somehow stop them from doing that. That's basically what we're talking about here. That's uh, you know that's why labour are um, anxious for this issue to be settled, so that they can move on to talking about stuff that they are much more comfortable talking about. But I think at some point they're going to have to confront the issue uh, of uh, race racism, uh, and nationalism. And they're going to have to confront it in a fairly direct way if, that is, the, uh, they want to continue to drive to the left. Uh, if, uh, if they don't, then I think the result will be you'll end up with uh, a version of what used to be called blue labour, you know which uh, combines a certain um, uh, sort of traditionalist, social democratic approach to the economy with right-wing nationalistic policies. Uh, Morris Glassman, Lord Morris Glassman, who was um, the inventor of the blue labor label uh, under the leadership of Ed Miliband, uh, and briefly had some cachet with the leadership, had the slogan, faith, flag, and family. And that's what he thought labor should be about. Um, you know, it's that white working class stuff again. Um, so that that that's the reason for the disorientation.
7: Okay, so just tell us a little bit more about the kind of argument to remain and reform. Is that possible?
18: So I do think, so it, it is possible to, to some extent, again, I'm not uh, under any illusions that the EU can be so, sort of transformed into some kind of socialist utopia, you know, overnight or in a couple of years or anything like that. Um, I don't think it can be. But I think that um, the EU, what we should bear in mind is certainly compared to the British state, which is centuries old, um, you know, very, very set in stone, very, very hard to change. The EU is actually a young organisation It's changing all the time. The rules and laws that exist are constantly being bent and broken, particularly by the larger, more influential countries. The country that breaks the rules most in the EU, by far, hands down, it's not Greece or anything like that, it's Germany, by far. Mm -hmm. Um, And the UK actually doesn't do that. It's actually relatively rule-abiding, if you know what what I mean. But nonetheless, the UK has had huge influence, it has been very successful at shaping the EU frameworks to suit its interests. On financial services, for example, before we left uh, the EU, our commissioner in the EU was uh, Lord Hill, uh, who was the commissioner for financial services. He was in the process of reintroducing the revival of securitization across Europe. Mm-hmm. Securitization, the, the toxic packaging up, slicing and dicing of toxic financial products that would, played a key role in the financial crisis. And our, our representative of the EU was trying to, trying to revive that because the UK's interest under a neoliberal government was to promote finance capitalism across the EU. Under a socialist government in the UK, say, for example, under Jeremy Corbyn, that dynamic changes quite dramatically, particularly if it's accompanied by, for example, Melanchon government in France, which is not not necessarily impossible at the moment, other other leftist movements across Europe, the balance of power uh, changes. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of reform argument. But even, even if, you know, the thing about the UK, which I think has not been appreciated enough, is we are in an incredibly privileged position within the EU. We're not in the euro. So a lot, I find a lot of the Lexa arguments and critiques against, not this exhaustion you hear, but I mean, in, in general, when you hear Lexa arguments, what often it's critiquing is the Eurozone. And people say, oh, well, look what happened to Greece. You can't reform because if you try, they, they strangle your economy and shut down your banks. That that can't happen to us because we're, we have the Bank of England, we have the pound, we have our own sovereign uh, money system. And so there's a lot that we can do. We don't need to wait for reform. There's a lot that we can do ourselves now. On what what there might be a diplomatic row and a small fine that comes of it, but so what? This is part and parcel of the fight to change and change and reform the the institutions of the European uh, the European Union, and so I really think that we need to be much bolder in thinking. Um, often, I find, despite on the on the Lexus side, despite there's often a kind of a, a, a quite a sound understanding of power. But until it comes to the kind of EU laws and regulations, people go, oh, no, but the rules say you can't do that. Therefore, we can't do it. We need to leave. It's like, well, no, laws aren't these permanent lines in the sand that always exist. They're social constructions that are shaped by the balance of power in that institution and they can be remoulded broken bent according to shifts in power um Mm. but that's going to be a lot that's going to be a struggle that's going to be a long-term thing as i say i don't think we should try and pretend that the the, the eu can somehow be transformed into this you know continental europe socialist paradise Mm. overnight
8: but Um, your argument is we can only do it if we have a seat at the table yeah Yeah. exactly
18: and if we end up in a norway type thing norway plus whatever then that's that's finished
15: Grace.
6: Yeah. Um, remain in to... Yeah.
15: Gonna...
6: I mean, I, th- actually, I thought Laurie's, um, exposition there was, was really interesting. And I completely agree with his, his theoretical stance that. Law, especially international law, its enforcement, um, and its interpretation depends much more on, uh, power relations than, um, statute itself. Mm. Uh, and you know, the whole liberal argument that, um, you know, law is this neutral objective enforcer of, of liberalism is, it's obviously bizarre it operates as a veil, uh, to legitimize the existing power relations. Um, so looking at those power relations, you know, you're going to come up against the reality of, of german power of the power of of capital not just in a kind of abstract sense but you know embedded in the institutions of the eu in the way the commission works in the way the council works in the way decision making works because the parliament is essentially completely toothless mm. um the the response to that is always well the british state as laura was saying is is much more kind of embedded it's it's you know the currents uh, of the kind of power of capital within it runs much deeper but the big difference is that it's possible to capture the executive. And in capturing the executive in a, um, in the context of parliamentary sovereignty, you gain a huge amount of power to, uh, transform institutions and make them work differently. Uh, and in an international institution like the EU, uh, not only, um, is parliament clearly not sovereign, but also, you know, there, there is no route for capture of the executive other than transforming, well, well other than, um, Every single member state or the most powerful member states electing socialist governments and then mm. clearing out the commission, which, again, is, you know, uh, and even then uh, it, convincing a German socialist government that its interests were um, best aligned by completely transforming the way the Eurozone works and effectively turning would the only way to make it work would be to turn uh, the Eurozone into a kind of federal model would be a really big stretch. That's kind of my Understanding of why remain and reform sympathy wouldn't work again. And it's just that the power structures would prevent that. The other thing to know, and I think in terms of, you know, looking at what the best future relationship is uh, with for us is with regards to the EU. uh, Laurie is quite right to point out that a lot of Lex arguments talk about Greece and Italy and about um, the eurozone. But I think the thing that we have to bear in mind is, again, think about this idea of, of historical junctures, about contradictions, because the Eurozone is beset with essentially kind of irreconcilable political and economic contradictions. And personally, I do not think that it, it in its current form it is sustainable. Either you're going to be looking at Federal Europe, but uh, Germany is, and the Northern European countries are highly likely to stand in the way of that, or it will breakdown and i personally think that at some point in the next several decades we will be looking at a collapse of the eurozone or at least a massive fragmentation and i think it's probably in our interest to be as far away as possible when that happens
18: the point about um germany is really interesting actually because although in the uk partly because of the way that the the press have covered the eu there's this idea that we're kind of bossed around by the eu and, mm. and stuff like that and we're this minimal player actually a lot of countries uh, were re- quite sad when brexit happened one of the reasons for that was because the uk was a counterbalancing force against Germany within the EU because you 're right Germany is hedge even more so once well completely once the u k leaves but the u k did provide that 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 countervailing power towards German power um, uh, which played quite an important role, and ironically because we 're not in the euro in the sense that other countries are the u k was by far the country that 's the best placed. In order to spearhead reform within the EU, because it's not shackled by many of the other things that other people are. And we're the one country that has unilaterally decided to leave. And bear in mind, once we leave, the EU and the Eurozone are still going to be there. So it's not as if by leaving that that solves that problem. Indeed, in many, in many cases, it might even make it worse. You know, and we all, we all probably agree here that the EU's approach to its external borders has been shameful with all the deaths in, in Mediterranean. Again, like leaving, yes, we agree that's bad. Leaving doesn't solve that. All it means is that we sacrifice our ability under a future progressive government to be able to influence that in any way, shape or form. Same with the Eurozone and everything else. The suffering that's happened on the Eurozone is is horrific. And I would hope that as a priority of a progressive government uh, in the UK, if we were in the EU, would be to try hard in order to try and fix that or help in some way, shape or form. But leaving, again, it doesn't address these problems. It just sort of says, well, we're going to try and leave. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably won't even do a good job of leaving. It doesn't really address them. It just leaves them over there to kind of get worse, if anything.
4: Brexit means Brexit. Means Brexit. Brexit. Brexit means Brexit. Means
13: Brexit.
9: Well, another extraordinary day of twists and turns here in Westminster. I'm here all day with all the Brexit latest. But before that, the sport and the weather. (sighs) <sighs> Jesus Christ, it's, it's like an episode of Don't Tell the Bride. It's some complete fucking Belen running around seven days before the big day, pissing his pants, not a fucking clue what he's doing, hasn't organised the car, the catering, the flowers. I thought I could come in on a jet ski. No. Are you sure about the jet ski? No. What about an aquatic personal watercraft? That's a fucking jet ski, Teresa. No one wants the jet ski. Shut up about the fucking jet ski. She's got one thing right, though. The UK has slid into a crisis, slowly and surely over 10 painful years. And who got us here? This lot. This gaggle of obdurate, arrogant, stubborn, unrepentant, heartless bunch of self-serving arseholes who have spent the last three years trying to keep their useless, irrelevant political parties together while sleepwalking the country into a food blender. Every MP in that building should bow their head in shame. You know, I had more respect for this useless bunch of wankers during the expenses scandal. You know, at least that particular omni-fuck suggested a a modicum of ingenuity, a bit of fucking brain. At least someone in the country was getting something out of it, even if it was just a free fucking duck house. What a fucking shit fight. Yeah, exactly. How did this happen? Seriously? Do you mean how did we end up with Brexit? That's like asking why is the moon there? All right, simple answer. Simple answer, they broke the contract. Okay, we, we are all obsessed in this country with your average leave voter. That stereotype of an over 50 southern gammon faced male reader who wants to turn the UK into a neoliberal deregulated paradise. But your, your average leave voter explains nothing because they were always going to vote leave no matter what. It's your marginal Leave voter that explains everything. 26% of UKIP voters in the 2015 election voted as a protest against the three main parties. You translate that sentiment to the referendum and boom! These are the people that saw their prospects go down the shitter. Who lost their job stability. Who had to move house because of the bedroom tax. Who suddenly saw no prospect of their kids going to university that have their disability benefits denied by some corporate box-ticking twat. We are in this mess because they broke the contract. The contract between a citizen and his government. A government's basic job is to extort money from the working people in the form of taxes. I'll have some of that, thank you very much, and we're fine with that. So long as the government redistributes that money wisely and fairly. Austerity broke the contract. When you make a conscious choice not to invest in education and at the same time massively rack up the private cost of further education, you break the contract. When you outsource the distribution of benefits to private companies whose main motivation is profit, you break the contract. When when the private sector decides who deserves help and who doesn't, the government is essentially saying it can't do its job. It's given up on delivering. Housing? Fuck me. The entire UK economy is basically a massive laundry for Russian dirty money via the property market, which inflates prices so that most people can barely afford rent, let alone a deposit for a house. This would never happen in a country with reasonably functioning institutions with the well-being of its citizens at its heart. These are all massive public policy failures which has led to a breakdown of trust between the electorate and the government. You sprinkle a, a tiny bit of its immigrants fault and and we pay the EU too much, it's going to resonate with the have-nots and the struggling. That's how populism works. It masks political failure by blaming others. We have a first-past-the-post-democratic system that doesn't work, that disenfranchises massive swathes of the electorate. Four million people voted UKIP in 2015, they end up with one MP. That's not healthy for anyone. You live in a safe parliamentary seat, you don't have a say, not really. And yet we're amazed when there's a vote that actually matters and the people vote for fuck you and you're better off in bullshit. I have to get my groceries from a food bank. They wanted to send a message. They did not want the status quo. And that's how you get Brexit. Brexit was sold to us as a panacea. In fact, it's the opposite. But Brexit has achieved one thing. Whilst Brexit won't solve any of our underlying problems, it has exposed them. Our constitution, our institutions, our democratic system and our politicians, they are not fit for purpose. If they don't deliver Brexit soon, they have failed at their jobs. But if they do, at this late stage, they will be knowingly and willingly fucking the country up the shit pipe. So either way, either way, Parliament's thin veneer of competency will finally be entirely worn away. This is the empire coming back to bite. Brexit is Pax Britannica coming home to roost. By taking back control, we have revealed to the world that our country is out of control. The UK chooses irrelevance. The UK chooses to give up its seat at the table. The geopolitical cost is immeasurable, not just because of Brexit, but because of this, this demonstration of our constitutional impotence. We're about to become a rogue state. We are about to become balkanized. Welcome to Great Britain, self-obsessed with its own importance whilst being fed for breakfast to any and all trading blocs who are feeling a bit peckish. Welcome to Great Britain, a middling economy with a power vacuum at its heart with no idea where to go next. It's going to be brutal. China, Japan, the US, they're all all circling for their Brexit dividend. The UK has ceased to function, and to top it all off, we have a prime minister who's gone rogue. The Maybot has turned into Hal from 2001, and all passengers and crew are expendable. Strong and stay born. Where's Guy Fawkes when you need him? You know, I I voted Remain, okay, but I have always considered myself to be a bit of an EU sceptic, but now. I'm a UK sceptic. You know my overwhelming emotion? No, not anger. Sadness. It's so, it's so sad. (sighs) Thank you, John. Well, we could do with some better weather here, because it's all doom and gloom here in Westminster. Coming up, I spoke earlier with our.
7: The middle-aged and older, in huge numbers, voted to leave. The younger ones, who are still working, voted to remain in Europe. So that part's new. What isn't new, I think, is targeting immigrants and refugees. We've seen a lot of this with Brexit. Even though immigration is one of Britain's oldest stories, right? Its first mosque was built in 1889. Its first Indian MP was elected in 1890. And, um, I, did you know that during the whole of the 19th century, Paul, not one immigrant was turned away in Britain? Wow. It really? doesn't mean though the public is for this, right? There were huge waves of resentment historically and sometimes even hatred, but somehow society worked it all out. Robert Winder tells us Brexiteers talk about this old Britain, this pure British identity that's never existed.
8: We've tended to look back on the past as being somehow uh, monocultural, but in the First World War, a quarter of a million, 250,000 Belgian refugees came to Britain at a time of war, at a time of tremendous rationing and austerity. And it was acknowledged that they were suffering allies and needed to be looked after. Before that, there was an exodus of Jewish refugees across the Baltic, escaping pogroms in Tsarist Russia, and then all other aspects of Britain's adventuring around the world. In 1764, thanks to the slave trade, it was reported in the gentleman's Magazine, that some 20,000 black Africans were wandering the streets of London. Now, that was probably an inflated number. It was deliberately exaggerated to alarm people, but it was a sign that there were a lot.
7: You've written about public furor and resentment during previous anti-immigrant campaigns. But what I'm wondering is, how different is the tone today around refugee venom during Brexit?
8: They're actually quite similar. I mean, if you look at newspaper headlines, I was looking at some the other day. One of them said, East of Aldgate, one walks into a foreign town. Another of them said, Tottenham has turned French. Another of them said, It was time to end this generosity to the off-scum of Europe who are coming here in enormous numbers. Now, the only odd thing about those newspaper headlines is that they were from the 1890s and the early years of the 20th century. So to that extent, things haven't changed. People have always had the same reaction at first.
7: Now, you mentioned this Tory MP who says with so many Jews arriving in East Allgate in the late 19th century, it was like arriving in a foreign town. And I find that fascinating because that's what a number of Swedes told Sven Steinmo, whom we heard from, about Syrians changing Stockholm, saying Sweden isn't Sweden anymore. I mean, I'm not saying it's a playbook, but
8: I, I think you're right. I think it is a playbook, actually. At least it's, it's a, it's a rather predictable reflex when change is hectic and, uh, visible and life feels a bit unsettling to, to blame the most obvious thing. And the most obvious thing throughout history has been the foreigner. And of course now that can be so emphasized through social media, through the existing media. And, um, it's to be. Resisted. It's actually a bit like growing old. There's not much, there's not much point saying it's a bad idea. Um, The the point is to see how we can make the best of the fact that it is happening. People have always wanted to move. Everyone will run away from a flood or a famine or a failed love affair or someone trying to punch them. Uh, This is just normal life and that will never change and people will find a route. If you build a wall in one place, people will tunnel under it or climb over it or get a boat and go around it.
19: racism is on the rise xenophobia is on the rise it uh, yeah, a lot of the fallout from brexit again sorry to harp on about the comparison does look like a lot of the fallout from the trump election is there, there is and there's there, a huge division now between kind of urban and rural between young and old it's a very polarized place
16: d- does that you know th- there's been this debate in the u.s about you know what gave rise to trump and sort of these two schools of thought, which I think I'm oversimplifying, and, and you know this because you yeah. cover U.S. politics, but, you know, basically the economic anxiety, right, that yeah. globalization and industrialization and sort of the, the rise of this sort of like globalized class uh, under neoliberalism that left behind so many parts of – you know, America, but also the UK and other places, uh, this sort of rebellion against that, that took the form of this nativist, yep. isolationist, nationalist backlash, anti-establishment, anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all corrupt self-dealers, Goldman Sachs, Clinton Foundation, yada, yada. And that's one theory. And the other theory is that this was American in the American context, American racism uh, that has been the founding stand of the country yep. from the very first moment. The and, white lash. Yeah, Van the James white lash. Exactly. Yeah. Is that debate a debate on the left, center left in, in the Big UK. Term.
19: Yeah, no, I think it's almost exactly the same debate going on huh. in the UK. It, very similar. And I would argue, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I know you you don't want to make it reductionist, but if I had to pick between the two camps, I'm in the racial resentment, cultural anxiety school. I don't think economic anxiety is what drove yeah. Trump or Trump's base. And I don't think that's what drove Brexit. Again, in a similar way, there was a lot of op-eds and politicians coming out and talking about left behind and white working class voters in the north of England who had delivered Brexit. But actually, if you look at a lot of the rigorous academic research, social class was not a predictor of Brexit votes. In fact, you know, a huge chunk of middle class people and rich people voted for Brexit just as they did for Donald Trump. Exactly. Very Um, similar here. and, and, And also what I always say to people, especially on the left who say this is all about, you know, the working class, you know, if it's all about economic insecurity and the working class explain to me why the non-white members of the working class didn't vote for trump explain to me why the non-white members of the working class in the uk didn't vote for brexit you know that doesn't make any sense if income and class is what matters and actually um eric kaufman of birkbeck college in london did a study and he found that the number one predictor of support for brexit guess what it is chris guess what you the number one predictor of support for brexit was of all the different factors out there i would guess age Support for the death penalty, uh, which doesn't even exist in the UK. Fascinating. But it, again, it, it, <laughs> proxy, a proxy for, a, right, a, a, for right. a for a long dead period in British history. That's the, right. The, the good old days when you could That's execute right. people and you didn't have to listen to those damn Europeans or right. deal with these foreign brown people. Lord Ashcroft, who is a who is a conservative politician, one of the big supporters of Brexit, he did a big poll which found a massive correlation between people who don't like environmentalism, multiculturalism, uh, feminism. And support for Brexit. And now, ostensibly, none of those things have anything to do with Brexit. But again, proxies for people who don't yeah. like the way that their country that's has changed. Exactly right. They don't like the way that the you know what's happening uh, to the. Well, way. you know it's a movement of reaction, right? Of I course. mean, and, and, and in that's both why cases, Trump loved it. yeah,
16: it's classic. It's classic reaction in both cl- cases. And I, I mean, I agree with you with that I, I do think there's an atmospheric way in which. Globalism and neoliberalism have shaped the political economy and structure of companies oh, yes. that produce the conditions to make demagoguery on these scores worse. Generally, as a specific sort of causal, yeah, definitely. And the financial crisis—I mean, 2008, course, No yes. one could pretend that's not a driver of all these movements. But but fundamentally, I agree. As a causal the, the question you, yeah. of like what was driving this? Like, let's be clear about what was driving it.
19: No, and exactly. And, and many, 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 many people from deprived communities voted to stay in the UK. As I say, people of colour, I always say this to people, explain to me why. If it's an issue of class or income, what happened to people of colour? Why did they not right. c- c- pull the lever for Trump? Why did they not go for Brexit? Why did London, the most dynamic multicultural uh, city, the city with the biggest uh, foreign-born population in the UK, why did London decide to stay in the EU. So uh, yeah, I do think a lot of it's to do with that and that's what worries me most about the fallout from Brexit. It's the same thing with Trump. You can vote Trump out of office. You might by some miracle be able to delay or undo Brexit or do what's called a soft Brexit. You don't pull out completely. But what do you do about the underlying forces of reaction which drove both these movements? Right,
16: and Boris Johnson who now sees a place for him. I mean that that, yeah. that is such a great weather vane moment, right? He senses and you're seeing this in the US, right? Like politicians sense that that's where the base, particularly the Republican Party is. Again, it's the same thing as Brexit, which is that if you look at the approval ratings of Donald Trump, there's a lot of buyer's remorse there, too. He's underwater. He's not popular in the same way that Brexit is not popular once the dog caught the car. I think what's interesting
19: is while there were some good arguments for Brexit I was opposed to Brexit But there were some arguments for Brexit There are some genuine debates to be had about The lack of democracy inside the European Union uh, The yes. austerity policies of the European yes. Union The euro, the current single currency And the disaster that's been There was definitely good argument, some good arguments Not many, but some in favour of Brexit Whereas I would argue there was not a single good argument In favour of Donald Trump Having said that, I still think Americans are in a better boat Because at the end of the day you could still vote Donald Trump out of office. Brexit is forever.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Now This News, giving an overview of the history and delay of Brexit. Chapo Trap House looked at the Euroskeptical left perspective on the neoliberalism of the EU. Democracy Now! also looked critically at the EU from the left, as well as the dirty dealings of the original referendum campaign. Ideas from the CBC also explained some of the deceptive tactics of the Leave campaign. The inquiry laid out concerns over the border between Ireland, North and South. Analysis also looked at the history of the troubles in Ireland and how Brexit could accidentally rekindle them. This Is Hell took a tour of British politics from right to left. The Weekly Economics podcast hosted a debate between two progressives arguing Lexit versus Remain and Reform. Jonathan Pye was the satirist who basically failed to do any satire and just ranted on point about the underlying causes of Brexit. Ideas continued that thought, discussing the role of identity and fear in the face of immigration. And finally, we just heard, why is this happening? Discussing the role of racial grievance that is the through line between multiple movements around the world, including Trump's election and Brexit. The latest, just so you know, is that the whole thing has been delayed again until October because no one could agree on an exit deal, so now they get to stretch out the agony even further. And now, dear listener, you can finally go and have a conversation with a British person again without having to ask them to explain Brexit to you. So to the British and non-British alike, you're welcome. Uh, There's one last thing to wrap up, though. I I cannot believe we got through all of that and didn't even get to the question of Scotland. So... Let me try to wrap that up as quickly as I can. So a few years ago, Scotland had an independence referendum. Uh, let's just say that Scotland and England have always had sort of an uneasy relationship with each other, uh, sometimes punctuated by wars of domination and, and control. So Scotland's been, you know, a little bit on the like, "Hey, some of us would like to get out of here." sort of in that mindset for a while. So they had a referendum and it was voted down. They, they said, no, we don't need our independence right now. We're happy to stay with England in, in the UK. But that was before Brexit. And Scotland voted overwhelmingly against Brexit. So naturally, one might think, okay, so this could spur interest in another independence referendum because Scotland was already almost on the verge of wanting their independence anyway, and now they're getting pulled out of the EU, which they don't want to do. So they're getting pulled out against their will, and and so a new referendum for independence would have all the same arguments that were there before that almost got them to vote for independence before – but now it could come with the extra benefit of, well, if the UK pulls out of the EU, but we want to stay in, well, then we could get our independence and go back and join the EU. There is at least one major hitch in in this uh, thought process, and it is very much a mirror image of the concerns about the border like we were hearing with Ireland. So Northern Ireland, part of the UK, having a border with Ireland, the independent country, isn't a problem as long as they're all in the EU together. But if one is in the EU and one isn't, well, all of a sudden there are trade barriers that may need to go up, and there are a lot of concerns about that. And so before, when Scotland was considering their independence, Scotland and England, the UK, would have both been in the EU. So Scotland could have had their independence, but there wasn't going to be any concern about the border. Now, assuming the UK actually does proceed with their uh, Brexit, if Scotland wants their independence, now they have to figure out what to do with the border wrinkles upon wrinkles upon wrinkles if you have any thoughts on this I would love to hear them you can call into the voicemail line 202-999-3991 that is going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple podcasts and Facebook to help others